0: Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church podcast. We have a great episode for you. So, let's get to it. Amen. Hey, you can clap for that. Somebody started back there. It's scary to be up here. Wish well, you guys clap for me more often. Yeah! No, I had to ask for it. It's not the same. Come on, you people. We are uh, <laughs> we are continuing our Advent series. Advent simply means uh, the coming or the arrival of somebody important or something important. And uh, for a very, 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 very long time, the church has always taken this time of year to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ and. Uh, We've been looking at this year at some Psalms written about 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus came as they awaited for his first advent, his first coming. And uh, we, as Christians now, we live in this period uh, that theologians call the already, but not yet. So we've had the first coming of Jesus, and that accomplished so much. But we also await the second coming of Jesus. One of the things I love about the church calendar is uh, in the church calendar, the new year is actually the last week of November or the first week of December which is this interesting place to be. It's the new year, but it's not actually the new year yet. And the reason they do that is because that's where we are as Christians. The new is here, but the new is not all the way here. Jesus is ruling and reigning, but there's still death and sickness and all the things we hate about this world. And as we jump into Psalm 100, we're looking today at joy. We're looking at the joy we find in Christ. When, joy is, uh, when Jesus rather is uh, pronounced to the world, Joy is to come with him, and yet a lot of us probably struggle with feeling joy. Now, as we talk about joy, there's several different types of joy. Uh, we feel all of these. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you probably feel these types of joys. Uh, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is what our joy is rooted in. Uh, so the different types are, number one, there's the feel-good kind of joy. Uh, it's, it's Hallmark movie season. Uh, and, you know, I used to think Hallmark was from hell. I really did. But... I'm starting to change. I don't know if you get older, you soften or something, uh, but this, this yesterday, I think it was, maybe two days ago, Taylor and I were, uh, it was Friday, it was our day off, and uh, we got on Netflix, and you know Taylor wanted to watch a, a, a Hallmark-type Christmas movie, and they had Feel Good Christmas, and I literally just clicked on the first one, and she said, you didn't even look, and I said, they're all the same. It, like, you know, it's just it, it, different. It's either going to be a doctor or a knight or a lawyer, but it's all the same story. And uh, we watched The Night Before Christmas. Uh, it was wonderfully cheesy. And uh, <laughs> it just made you feel good. And that's a certain kind of joy. Uh, here in a little bit, we're going to have our family meal where we get together and we eat a meal together. And let me tell you, it's just a feel-good kind of joy just being with you guys. I love it. It reminds us of the good we have, and it kind of takes our mind off of the bad in the world. It's a feel-good kind of joy. It doesn't last very long, but it's a feel-good kind of joy. Second kind of joy is a joy of celebration. It's like when your team wins the game. You know, uh, I felt this during bedlam this year. Will I ever stop talking about it? No, because we only win once a decade. It was a celebration. Yes, we did it kind of joy. And, uh, you know, we, we also experience this when we're at a wedding. You know, there's really not sorrow at a wedding. We're just excited for the young couple or you see somebody get engaged. You're like, yes, that's awesome. We celebrate with joy. Uh, I won't talk about the despair that often follows the celebration. <laughs> that is not a part of today's sermon. And then the, the final type, probably the deepest kind of joy, uh, would be what I would call like a, a solemn joy. This is the kind of joy we experience at a funeral of somebody we loved, of somebody who lived a good and full life. You know, There's something about it that is obviously sad because we've lost one we love, but there's also this joy or this gladness that is in our hearts. We're glad that we got to know them. We're glad that they lived as long as they did. We're glad for some of us you know, that they're not suffering anymore. There's this, this kind of weird joy that comes with it, and it's a very deep kind of joy that is accompanied with tears often. And for the Christian, that is the kind of joy we experience most of the time. Like I would like to tell you that it's mostly feel-good or celebration. Those moments are great. They're the mountaintops. But the life of a Christian is is honestly this solemn kind of joy. And what separates the Christian from the non-Christian is is we ought to never feel cynical. We ought to never feel despair. Despair is without hope. But we do often, looking at the brokenness in our life and the brokenness in the world, look at the world with a solemn joy. And honestly, the biggest difference between those of you who call yourselves Christians trusting in Jesus and those of you who are not trusting in Jesus is what the joy is rooted in. For those of us who are Jesus followers, our joy is rooted not in our circumstances, but in Jesus Christ himself, which means my joy does not waver with the way that the world goes and with the way my life goes, which is an amazing place to be. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at some people whose joy does not waver as we jump into this text. I want to give you my outline. To begin with, uh, we're going to look at what is worship, because joy and worship are so tightly combined. That's why we're looking at Psalm 100. It's a it's a psalm of worship. Uh, and I, I believe, and this is kind of a radical statement, but stick with me. I think I can prove it. Uh, you cannot worship God if you do not have joy in God. It, it can't happen. You cannot worship God if you do not have joy in God. And I, I think the reason why that might be controversial is because a lot of us don't really know what worship is. So we're going to look at what worship is in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to look at why I believe worship without joy is impossible. And finally, I'm going to give you five reasons, hopefully quickly, <laughs> for why we have joy in Jesus. But first, as I always do, let me pray. Because you guys did not come to hear my words, you came to hear his words, and I, I, want, to, I want to make sure we talk to the Father. Father, we love you. God, we're, we're thankful for uh, all of the things you've brought to us in Jesus Christ. As we've already looked at the hope that we have in Jesus, the peace we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray today as we look at the joy that we have in Jesus, you would stir the hearts of some of your people here today who are tired. God, who maybe are feeling despair, maybe are feeling cynical because they've kind of taken their eyes off of you. Lord, I pray that we could squarely put our eyes back on you and remember the source of our joy is not our circumstances, but our Savior. God, I pray maybe for the first time today, somebody would would see you not as an abstract idea to believe in, but as a person to enjoy. To have a joy that is unshakable. That we might all leave here today and say, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, I need you as I preach your word today. I pray that you would blow anything I say that is untrue away, like chaff in the wind. And I pray that anything that is true would be highlighted in the minds and the hearts of my listeners. God, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Before we look at this, I do want to make a a quick note on uh, mental health. Uh, Because when I talk about joy, uh, it's it's easy, I think, for some of you to feel convicted or guilty when it's not really your fault. Uh, And I want to be very careful here, because just like if you had a broken arm or if your knee was torn, I would tell you to go see a doctor and, and get get fixed up for it. It's not your fault. You can't walk. Right. It's not your fault. Your arm doesn't work. Right. The same is true with the brain, that there are times in our lives in which the chemicals just aren't working the way they're supposed to because we live in a fallen and in a broken world. And I'm not the kind of pastor who stands up here and says, just pray it away. Because there are some serious things. And in some cases, you need medicine. And in a lot of cases, I think we need to see a professional. I am not a professional. If you come to me for mental health, it's like, you know, coming to a cardiologist for knee surgery. It's just, it's not going to go well. I'm, I'm kind of in the same sphere, but I'm not there. So I'm, I'm very pro-counseling here to Sint. My wife is a, about to get her degree. She just had uh, finals. So she has like one more semester left. Clap for that way smarter than me. Uh, and uh, and I'm super excited. We're very pro-counseling. If you need help, get help. And if you need medicine and the doctor recommends it, then, then get medicine. But what I will also say is that our country is far and above the most medicated country in the world. We, uh, we have more problems uh, as far as medicine goes than any other country. And really, it doesn't match up because we're the richest and we have the most secure country <laughs> in the world. So why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of factors, but I would say probably for some of us who suffer with depression, and the experts will tell us this, a lot of it is lifestyle-based. The choices that we make, the choices that we make lead us into a place of depression. Now, that's not true for everybody. I want to be very careful. I'm, I'm on thin ice here. Uh, but my prayer is that those of you who are using it as a crutch would hear this from God and that you would start making choices that will lead you to joy. And my biggest fear is that those of you who really need to get help won't get help because you're trying to, trying to willpower and man your way through it or woman your way through it. And I want to say to you, there's no shame in getting help for the places that you need help. So with that out of the way, let's jump in. I'm going to answer what is worship, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. Verse 1 says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Uh, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. And in verse 1 where it says, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. We see the already, but not yet. Uh, Right now, this is kind of a cool thought. Right now, all over the world, there are people preaching the same gospel message of Jesus Christ. They're all saying he is the Lord, a, a Jewish Messiah. There's no reason why I should be preaching about joy in a Jewish Messiah. Except for the fact that he proved himself to be God, that he died and he rose again. And it's really cool to think about, as we were singing those songs just a few minutes ago, there was people on the other side of the world in a different culture, in a different language, also singing to the same King Jesus. And surely today, of the millions of Christians, there is another church service preaching on Psalm 100. I think that's really cool, that all over the world there are people who call King Jesus their king. But there's still those who deny him. and we await the day in which he comes back, and this psalm, this might be a worship psalm, we sing together in the New kingdom. As uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians two ten and 11, that there will be a day in which every knee, not some of the knees, every knee will bow to King Jesus. Either bow now or you bow later, but every knee is going to bow and see him as the king of this universe. Now, verse 2 is where we get into worship. It says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Now, some translators, and you can do this. It, it works in the, in, the, in the Hebrew. Some translators will take the word serve and they'll use the word Worship. Because in the Bible, the word serve and the word worship are synonymous. Uh, So what we often do is we conflate worship and praise. Uh, Like what we just did, we sang. Uh, Some people will say, that's the worship and praise portion of the service. And now Blake's up there, he's going to talk a little bit, and then we'll worship some more. When in reality, they're not the same thing. When we sing, we should always be worshiping. But singing is not all that worshiping is. Worshiping is obeying and serving God. It's opening my life up to him and saying, God, whatever you want, and obeying him. So I, uh, Romans 12.1 says that our true worship is that we are a living sacrifice. I die to myself. God, whatever you want, you get it. Uh, a great example of this in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets to stand in the throne room of God. And he's he's shook with silence because of the magnitude and the amazingness of God. And the first words out of his mouth, the words of worship that Isaiah says are, Here I am, Lord, send me. He didn't even know where he's going. God hadn't even told him what it is. He said, but send me. The answer is yes. Now, what do you want me to do? This is worship. That's why, yes, singing is worship, but forgiving the person you've been holding a grudge against is worship also. You know, writing a big check towards a mission when God has called you to do it, that's worship. Loving your wife is worship. Loving your husband is worship. Being kind to your children is worship. Getting help for an addiction when you need it is worship. It's all worship. When I serve the Lord and I obey him. Now, you might say, Blake, but that's difficult. (laughs) You know, I'd rather just sing songs. Uh, I I like doing that a lot better. You know, it's, it's, it's really easy for me to sing Waymaker and have tears coming down my face. But then I have to go home and actually be kind to my wife. And you're telling me that's worship? I'm telling you that's, that's actually the worship that God's after. is that living sacrifice thing. And this is why, number two, I say that worship without joy is impossible. You won't do that if you don't have joy motivating you. You won't do that if you don't have some kind of joy in Jesus Christ. And I, I think I've been guilty of this, uh, and I think the church is often guilty of this, is we don't tell you this up front. You know, like we, we, we give you the pitch for follow Jesus, we tell you all the good things. And there's a lot of good things. But there's also this bit where he says, you know, you've got to bear your own cross. You've got to deny yourself. If you want to find uh, what you're looking for, you have to lose yourself. He says it's better to lose the world and keep your soul than the other way around. He says these things, and they're really important things. And we have people who are like, I'm a Christian, and they have no idea what they're getting into. Reminds me of one of my favorite movies. Um, you probably watch more sophisticated movies than I do, but Scooby-Doo is... <laughs> a legendary character in my mind. Yes. And uh one of my favorite Scooby-Doo movies uh it's it's like they had the real people, you know, and they they put him in there on a computer or whatever. It's awesome. And uh his, his little nephew, Scrappy, is evil, and there's this evil guy, and they need to sacrifice a, a dog. And so they get Scooby, and they tell Scooby he's going to be the sacrifice, and he has no idea what that means. But in the meantime, what they're doing is they're feeding him grapes, and they're giving him food. They're fattening him up, and, and then they carry him in on a throne into the sacrifice place, and he sees Shaggy, and he says, Shaggy, look, I'm a rack rice. <laughs> And then Shaggy explains to him what a sacrifice is. And he's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's how my mind works when I read the Bible. That's what I thought of as, as I was thinking through this text. That's what so many of us are like, look, this is awesome. Die to yourself. Bear your cross. I want you to know that to be a Christian means your true worship is to be a living sacrifice to King Jesus. One pastor said the problem with living sacrifices is they're often trying to crawl off the altar. and that's so true in my own life right it hurts sometimes to follow jesus so why would i do it because of the joy that's set before me because of the joy i have in jesus christ friends we have to look no further than our savior himself to see this play out Uh, we often think of jesus as god and he is god but what you need to understand is when he came to earth he laid down those privileges he was fully human He showed us what it looked like, not only, he not only showed us what God was like, but he also showed us what it looks like to be fully human. And before he went to the cross in the garden of Gethsemane, he he asked God to take away the suffering from him. He didn't want to suffer, just like you don't want to suffer. But then he says, God, not my will, your will, which is what it means to be a living sacrifice. And then in Hebrews, it tells us why Jesus was willing to bear the cross, which, by the way, I don't care what suffering you have going on in your life, it exceeds it by a hundred. The God of this universe bearing the sin and the shame of the world, dying a humiliating death. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us why he was willing to bear it. It says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source of our joy. Got to keep our eyes on him or we won't do it. The pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When you get this, you'll be an unstoppable worshiper of God. And we all should look a little bit crazy to the world. Why would you give away all of your money? Why would you forgive that person? Why would you Why would you sell everything and move across the country to plant a church or to go on a mission? Why would you do that? For the joy that is set before me. Some of the early Christians are the best examples of this. There's a story of a guy named Polycarp. He's one of the church fathers. And uh, he's 86 years old. And the, the Roman Empire was going to kill him. And they didn't want to kill him. He's 86 years old. And, but he had to give something to Caesar. They said, can you just... Can you, you can say Jesus is king, but can you just one time say Caesar is king and then we won't have to kill you? And here's what Polycarp says. This is amazing. All he has to do is say Caesar is king one time and he's not going to be killed. And Polycarp says, 86 years I have served Christ and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme the king who saved me? I bless him for counting me worthy of this day, this hour, that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. You don't say that unless you have a joy that is greater than any joy found in this world. Or the Apostle Peter who, when uh, he was persecuted and they killed him, they were going to crucify him. And he said, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior, so please crucify me upside down. (laughs) Why? For the joy set before him. For the joy that he had in Jesus. You won't worship if you don't have a delight in God, a delight in Jesus. So let me give you five reasons now as we close why you should have joy in Jesus. And just because I said we're closing doesn't mean we're close. We're about halfway. (laughs) If you're the kind of person that times, preachers, that is. Uh, Verses 3 through 5, I'll read them and then we'll we'll look at the five reasons we find in them. Verse 3 says, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. We are His. And some translations here say, and not our own. And that's that's a fine translation. Just take it from different transcripts. His people, the sheep of his pasture, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. So why do we have joy in Jesus? Well, number one, he has revealed God to us. Uh, Verse three says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. What you might not know is that uh, in in the scriptures, there's actually a lot of different names for God. Uh, In English, we kind of just limit it down to God, but there's a lot of different names for him. Uh, One of the names for God in the Old Testament is Adonai, which we translate Lord usually. What's interesting here is, is it says acknowledge that the Lord is God. Acknowledge that Adonai is God. What's interesting about it is in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is called Adonai, that he is God that we acknowledge as Christians, one of the, the, actually I would say the foundation of being a Christian is acknowledging that Jesus is God, that all of truth has manifested itself in Jesus. This should be reason for joy for us, that God would make himself known, that the painter would step into the painting. How amazing is that? The God of this universe would take on flesh. You guys don't look all that amazed, but I've got four more reasons. I'll get you. Number two uh, is that he has made us. And then in parentheses, I put again, <laughs> it, it says he made us. We are his. So in a sense, even if you're not a Christian, uh, the Bible will tell us that uh, Jesus was there at the creation of the world, that everything is created and sustained through him, that you've been knitted in your mother's womb by Jesus. He made you. That should be reason for joy in and of itself. But as Christians, we have yet another reason for rejoicing, because in Second Corinthians, it tells us that we've been made again. We've been born again. Meaning I have a new status and a new family. My new status is this. I'm a son of God. (laughs) I don't know who your dad is, but mine's cooler. You're a daughter of God. Did you deserve it? No. It was given to you through Jesus. He is the only rightful son of God. And yet through his blood, we were adopted into the family of God. Which is the second part. We have a new family. Uh, Jesus' family comes to him in the Gospel of Mark and they're trying to get him to stop preaching because people are trying to kill him and so they're like, Jesus, come home with us and, and Jesus like, disowns his, his physical blood family he says, uh, "He says, who are my, mo- my mother and my brothers and my sisters but those who do the will of God in other words, we've been given a brand new family which is why I love our family meal part of what we do there is enjoying the company of one another And by the way, how great is it that our family expands? Your humanly family, you know, the the core nucleus of it is not really all that big. And you don't even like some of them, to be honest. Uh, But you have to be with them because they're your family. Well, the same is kind of true in the church. There's some people we have to be with because they're family. But we have such a great family. And friends, if you are a part of this family, you need to act like they're family. In other words, when you have problems, you ought to reach out and ask for help. When you need financial assistance, you ought to come to your family and ask for that financial assistance. Why? Because we are a family. This is what we do. And it's reason for rejoicing in Jesus. Number three is he is our shepherd. It says that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And for any Israelite reading the Psalms, it would bring them back to Psalm 23. Uh, And it should bring our mind back to Psalm 23 also. Psalm 23 is is a funeral (laughs) text. I often hear it. Uh, but really, it's, it's a psalm for the living, much more so than the dead. Uh, because Psalm 23 is how life works for us. Psalm 23 is structured in a very um, important way. It starts by uh, calm and still waters. Uh, and then you go through the valley. The shepherd leads you through the valley. Not around the valley, not under the valley, not over the valley, but through the valley. And on the other side of the valley is when we're at the table of the Lord and our enemies are under our feet. But you don't get there without going through the valley. There's no other way. Or Jesus would come and he'd modernize this for his time. You don't get there except for by going through the cross. Our shepherd will lead us through the valley. Here's why that brings me joy as a Christian because it gives purpose to my pain, it gives meaning to my suffering. Because I know that my life is not a coincidence. You know, it might look like a coincidence when I lose my job or I get a bad diagnosis. It might look like a coincidence when somebody I love dies or leaves. But it's not a coincidence. God knew it was going to happen, and God wasn't surprised. God's not in heaven going, oh, goodness, I didn't see that coming. Sorry, Blake. No, he knew it. He didn't cause it, but he will use it. And the Bible tells me he will use it for my good and for his ultimate glory. And as a Christian, I can believe that. Now, this is something that uh, clinical psychologists do. It's called reframing. Uh, you, you reframe a situation. If you, if you struggle with something and you go to a psychologist, what they might do is, is they'll do this thing called reframing where they'll help you see it in a new light so that it changes the way you view uh, what is going on in your life. Because honestly, for a lot of us, the problem is not actually the problem. It's the way we see the problem. This is why you see people who have like, lost their arms and legs and they're really joyful. And you see other people who have all the money in the world, everything that you want, and they're miserable. Why? Well, because it's their perspective on the situation that causes it. Uh, this is a definition. Uh, my wife, I could probably have her come up here and explain it because she's only getting a degree in this. But cognitive reframing, here's the definition. Uh, it says, is a technique used to shift your mindset so you're able to look at a situation, person, or relationship from a slightly different perspective. The essential idea behind reframing is that the frame through which a person sees a situation determines their point of view. When that frame is shifted... The meaning changes, and thinking and behavior often changes along with it. Now, they thought they made that up, but they didn't make, they didn't make that up. Uh, that's been a huge theme in Christian thought for a very long time. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite books, you all should read it, every single one of you. It's a really short book. It's a really old book. It's called Practicing the Presence by a guy named Brother Lawrence. He was a, he's a really lowly guy, and uh, yet he, would, he was a dishwasher. And what he would do is he would constantly bring his mind back to the presence of God. And his, his faith will strengthen your faith. He will make you feel like a worm. I try to read it at least once a year because I am amazed by this guy. Really short book, you ought to read it. If you want me to buy it for you, I'll buy it for you because I believe it's that good. But here's what he says about the difficulties of life. He says, the difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them through faith or unbelief. That's what makes them so. We must be convinced that our Father is full of love for us. That he's a good shepherd and that he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. And then he's writing to a friend. One of the letters is he's writing to a friend who has got a sickness that is threatening his life. And I love the way he talks about it. Because I think for most of us, we would try to comfort the person and say things like, you know, God, let's just pray that it all goes away. But that's not what he does. He says there's something more important than your health right now. It's your eternal happiness and your eternal holiness. And this is what he says. He says, I told you in my last letter that he sometimes permits bodily diseases to cure the distempers of the soul. Have courage then. Make virtue of necessity. Ask of God not deliverance from your pains, But strength to bear resolutely for the love of him, all that he should please, and as long as he shall please. Why is this good news? Well, this certainly isn't the celebration kind of joy, and it's not the feel-good kind of joy. But it is the kind of joy in which, with tears coming down my face, I say, though you slay me, I trust in you. Though things are not the way I would choose them, I trust, and I might not figure it out on this side of eternity, but I trust that you're doing something I can't understand. This is what we call childlike faith. It's trusting your dad. You know, you've ever seen a kid who um, is is sick or or something, you know, they have something broken and you have to take them to the hospital and the doctor has to do something very mean to them. It feels like pain, but as a parent, you know that that pain is actually what's going to cause them to have long term health. The same is true with your heavenly father. It hurts to get your shoulder popped back into place, but it's for the better. And it hurts to get your soul popped back into place in some ways. And sometimes you're going to have to suffer and go through pain because that's the only way. You can't go around. You can't go under. You can't go over the valley. You've got to go through the valley. And all we can look to in those moments is that our shepherd is a good shepherd and that he went through it with us. All right, number four. He's made a way for us to sit at God's table. Uh, Verse four says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. This is temple language, saying when you come to the temple, the gates uh, and the courts do so with praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because it's a miracle that they're even there. The temple is the place where God meets with man. When you realize how holy and great God is and how insignificant and small you are, it's amazing he would make any way for us to meet with him. It would be like if the President of the United States invited you into the Oval Office. Now, I know some of you guys would talk a big game, and you'd say, you know, if I got in there, I'd tell him what I thought about the country. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to call anybody out. But uh, I think, I, this is what I think. I know it would be true for me, even if I disagreed with the man completely on everything. Because I was standing in the Oval Office talking to the man who maybe I disagreed with, I think I would respect the office enough to be amazed, and I'd get tongue-tied. I don't think I would know what to say. I would just be glad that I was there. In fact, there's examples of even United States senators. They say you walk into the Oval Office and it's, it's like disorienting. You come in there with a plan and you walk out and you don't even know what you said. Okay, times that by, I don't know, a trillion. And that's what it would be like to be standing in the courts of God. It always cracks me up when some of you say to me, I got some questions for God when I get there. <laughs> You're just going to try to make sure the flesh doesn't melt off of your skull, okay? <laughs> You're not going to have any questions. You're going to be like Isaiah. Here I am, send me. That's, that's all we have. Well, in Hebrews, we find that it's actually even greater for Christians. Because Jesus made a way for us to have the most intimate of relationships with God. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the temple curtain tore. Uh, and what that signified is that the, the temple is what kept the people from the Holy of Holies. Nobody was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. The center of the temple, that's where God's presence was most thick. Uh, the only person allowed to go in there was the great high priest. He would go in once a year. They would tie a, a bell to his leg so that if it stopped ringing, they would know that he died in the presence of God. And they put a rope on him so they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies <laughs> if he had died. He had to like, purify himself, get all the sin off of him, and then go in there and hope to God that the presence of this holy, life-giving God would not kill him. Jesus said when he died, that temple curtain tore. You and I have access to the Holy of Holies. When we pray, we are walking into the throne room of God. I think if we realized how special that was, a lot of us would pray differently. A lot of us would be a lot more grateful that we get to talk to God, that we get to walk into the throne room of God. Jesus made that way for you. And you don't walk in as a visitor or a guest. Again, you walk in as a son or a daughter. See, this brings you great joy if you look at it like Brother Lawrence does. I'm going to read another quote from him. He says, I regard myself as the most wretched of all men, stinking and covered with sores, and as one who has committed all sorts of crimes against his King Jesus. Overcome by remorse, I confess all my wickedness to him, ask his pardon and abandon myself entirely to him, to do with as he will. But this King, filled with goodness and mercy, far from chastising me, lovingly embraces me, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the keys of his treasures and treats me as his favorite. He talks with me and is delighted with me in a thousand and one ways. He forgives me and relieves me of my principal bad habits without talking about them. I beg him to make me according to his heart and always the more weak and despicable I see myself to be, yet the more beloved I am of God. That's what it's like to be a Christian. The closer you get to God, the more despicable you'll see yourself to be. (laughs) It's like when I first became a Christian, I thought, you know, like, yeah, you know, I don't say the right words and I watch some stuff I shouldn't watch. Well, you get to know God and you you realize that the problem is actually not what you're doing, but it's your heart. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, the depth of my sin is amazing. And what you'll find in the depth of that sin is that God's love is like a well that will not end. The more wretched you see yourself as, the more beloved you'll feel by God. He made a way for us to sit at God's table to the sacrifice on the cross. Now, number five, reason for joy in Jesus. This is the last one. If I haven't got you yet, I probably won't get you. That's okay. Number five is he shows us the enduring faithfulness of God. Verse five is amazing. It's what everything in the psalm hinges on. It says, for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. In other words, God is faithful even when we are not. That's good news. I mean, that's right there. That should make you want to sing. That He is faithful even when I'm not. This is vastly different from every other religion and every other system of God in the world. Uh, James Boyce says this. He says the gods of the heathen were not good. They were selfish and capricious. You could never know when they might turn against you and do harm. Not so our God. The God of the Bible is and has always been good. That in especially in the Israelite days they would. You know, to get a God to do what they wanted, they had to do evil things like sacrifice a child or, you know, they they thought that, you know, if they didn't do the right things or if God, the God of the crops woke up in a bad mood, then they wouldn't get their crops that day. Not so with Yahweh. Yahweh is set apart in this way, that he loves whether we love him or not. He's faithful whether we're faithful or not. He's merciful whether we're merciful or not. You say, Blake, how do you know that to be true? I know it to be true because Jesus came and took on flesh and he showed me. I know it to be true because I've experienced it. Uh, Paul, or Paul says this in, in Romans 5, 6-8. I don't have it on screen because I'm going to read out of the message paraphrase. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this. It says, Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for his sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do Anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. That, my friends, is the amazing faithfulness of God. And how does that apply to my life? Well, anything else I go through in life is far smaller than God sending his son. This is exactly what Paul says. If he who would give his son would give his son for us, then how would he not also give us all good things? I can trust that he's good even when life's not. I can trust that he's faithful even when I'm not. And Molly, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. As we close, uh, I, I, I hope that you're understanding that the point of this faith, more than anything else, is not an abstract idea or an abstract mindset, but it's, it's the joy that we find in the person of Jesus. Because when you find joy in a person, you're willing to sacrifice for them. I was thinking about this. uh, Taylor and I, uh, in January, will celebrate eight years together. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. You're popping for Taylor right now. That's a miracle, you know, like the temple. Um, And, uh, you know, I thought back to really our our younger days when we were first dating. And just, I was insane, the things I did. You know, like I I would drive hours to see her for 30 minutes and turn around and drive hours back. (laughs) You know, I spent money I didn't have. I, I did all sorts of things for her, and you didn't, have to, you didn't have to force me to do it. Like, there was nobody saying, Blake, you, you need to do this. I did it out of joy because I loved her. And I think just like in marriage, we can get this way with Jesus where we forget that joy that we once had. You know, now sometimes she asks me to take out the trash, and I'm like, ah, don't know if I can do that. And I used to drive hours for 30 minutes. (laughs) Because we forget the joy that we once had. And so my prayer today is that some of you maybe would see Jesus for who he is for the first time and have joy in him. But my my secondary prayer is that you would remember what you have in him. And maybe this is a little marriage advice too. Take out the trash when you get home. Remember the joy you have in your spouse. But I want you to remember the joy that you have in Jesus Christ because he's worth it. And without joy, you'll never be able to worship and serve Him. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you that you sent your Son and along with Him you sent joy. God, I pray that we would be people who would not fear, who would not lose hope. God, but that we would be people who, because of your goodness, we would place our joy in you. Irregardless of what our circumstances are saying. God, that we wouldn't We wouldn't fear the storm because we have the one who can calm the storm in the boat with us. Jesus, I love you. I praise you and I pray today, God, that eyes have been opened, that hearts have been opened to your love. God, and as we know you more, it's impossible for us not to love you more. And as we love you more, it's impossible for us not to experience your joy more. Right now, friends, take about 20 seconds and ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand to our feet and praise this king. Luke 2, chapter 10 and 11 says, But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Let's worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks.